Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Outside the System. Today's episode is a conversation with Zach Slayback, a partner at 1517 Fund. 1517 backs dropouts, renegades, and deep tech scientists at the earliest stages before anybody else. If you're interested in hearing about innovation happening in real life from outside the system in areas like biotech, energy, and autonomous vehicles, you'll enjoy this conversation. Let's get to it. Zach, thanks for joining me on Outside the System. Thanks for having me, Neil. Yeah, no, so I've been looking forward to this one. We, I know, had some uh, scheduling delays for this. I've teased this episode to some people, so I know there's definitely some excitement to, uh, to have you on. I think a lot of the things that you've worked on over the years are so relevant to the theme of this show, which is basically builders, people who are trying to create things outside of the traditional structures. And I think what you do obviously now and some of the things you've done in the past tie really nicely into that. So I think probably the best place to start for people who don't know Zach already is just dive into your background a little bit. You know, what, are you, what have you worked on? What are you working on now? And uh, then we'll, we'll take it from there. Sure. Yeah. So I am currently a partner at 1517 Fund. We're a venture capital fund that backs what I like to say is dropouts, renegades, and deep tech scientists everywhere from research and development all the way up through IPO. But we make our first investments, you know, angel pre-seed seed is really what we say. So I check anywhere from $50,000 to about maybe up to a million in certain cases as our first check. But really 50000 up to 500000 is what we mostly do. Before that, you know, I wrote a book. I was on the founding team of a company that was kind of going up against credentialism helping people get jobs uh, where they didn't have a degree, but they would have required a degree. And, and then before that, I was a researcher in the philosophy department somewhere. So it's a, it's a weird circuitous, circuitous path. And I get asked a lot, especially the last couple of years, which probably is not a good sign about the state of the market. You know, how, do you, how does one like get into venture in particular? And you know, one of my colleagues likes to put it, well, there are three ways you can do it. You can become rich and then start doing it, which is the most straightforward way, but also not. <laughs> you can take like a traditional investment banking path where you graduate, you go get a job at like Goldman, do that for maybe two years, then you go get a job as an analyst at a big firm, you know, go get your MBA, come back, do some good investments, and then go launch your own fund. Or then the third category is kind of other and weirdo, and I, I firmly fall in that bucket. So I would not encourage people to emulate me in that regard. <laughs> Yeah, you're saying the path to, to your current job is not found through philosophy departments. <laughs> Probably not. At the same time, like at our firm, two of the four people on the investment team studied philosophy. The other one was um, a charter school starter, and the other one never went to university at all. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> weird. again, still very weird bucket. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is that you're kind of like eating your own dog food, right? With the way that you're backing people who don't fit that traditional mold and you guys kind of all don't fit the traditional VC. Like, it doesn't sound like there's anybody from MIT, Stanford, like undergrad, MBA combo. And that's kind of, you know, you find that a lot, like A16Z or something. Probably have a hard time getting hired at a firm. Yeah. (laughs) So what do you mean by backing, you know, renegades or misfits or, or dropouts? Like, I guess maybe get into some specifics on that. Obviously, you, you mentioned deep tech. So 
it sounds like you're not just backing like someone who's working on the next like you know marketing SaaS app or something. You know, I'm not saying you maybe I, I don't know exactly who you you would invest in, but I wouldn't count that as as deep tech necessarily. So yeah, maybe talk a little bit more about like the types of founders that you guys are funding and the types of projects that you're you're interested in. Sure. I mean, we will back software companies. So probably about a half of our portfolio is some kind of software, but we reserve about a third of the portfolio for firmly deep tech. And deep tech is kind of this weird amorphous category that we kind of also put some of our biotech stuff into. But our deep tech founders, even then, we're, we're often looking for people who they're working in either like very edge of science or they kind of meet that renegade subthesis as well. So when I say dropouts, renegades, deep tech scientists, some, you know, genesis on the firm might be helpful. Uh, and also how I, I got pulled into it. My colleagues who started the firm are the co-founders also of the Teal Fellowship Program. Uh, so the Teal Fellowship, for those who don't know, is a, a $100,000 grant to leave school or not go to school and work on technology or your startup instead. And it started 2011. First class was in 2012, so 10 years ago. And some of the founders and people who have come out of it are the founders of uh, Ethereum, the founder of Figma, the founder of OYO Rooms, which is Marriott's biggest competitor in India, Luminar, uh, a bunch of other companies have gone through the Teal Fellowship Program. And the idea generally is that a lot of investors like over-index on credentials. Even today, you know, 10 years ago, that was around the time I started getting into the you know, credentialism conversations and, and debates, and things certainly have shifted quite a bit. But even today, you know, there's kind of this meme of investors backing the dropout young person in Silicon Valley. But I can guarantee you that if you give me your 50 most active seed investors in a given market, you know, nine times out of 10, they're going to go with the more credentialed team, the more prestigious looking team than the uncredentialed team. Which I mean, that's great. Their credentialism is our alpha. <laughs> But we really believe in backing those founders who are kind of off the beaten path, have taken weird, circuitous routes, or don't have those credentials. So in software, yeah, that could just mean a hacker type who has started working on their software while they were in school, or maybe they didn't even go to school. In deep tech, it's a little bit more different because that's a little bit more capital intensive. And sometimes some of the, some of the people there we may back, we may back do have credentials, but they're still, like I said, very much the edge of science. So yeah. Our firm exists to back those people because despite a lot of the high talk from lots of people, um, I don't think a lot of other firms would make that their their core thesis. Yeah. And in, I mean, in many ways, you're the epitome of that whole, well, Peter Thiel's sort of famous thing of like, what truth do you know that most people don't? I, mean, I know I'm paraphrasing there, but you guys are the epitome of that because you're basically making the bet. You're saying that there are there's alpha in backing these people who other people won't back. They're not getting backed simply because they lack a certain credential or they lack a certain, you know, pedigree or label. That's a big part of it. I mean, too, often what comes with that, that decision not to pursue that credential or just stop out and work on your company instead full time, you know, there are certain things that get signaled with that, like a certain commitment to the idea. But there's also like some other things that are wrapped up in that. So you know, we have one founder, for example, who's working in the biotech space who, you know, biotech investors are, are notoriously, especially therapeutics investors, they're notoriously conservative. You know, they're the types of investors 
where you're going to show up to the meeting. They probably are wearing a button down, if not a tie, maybe even a suit. They're probably in Boston and they probably have like multiple graduate degrees. That's kind of what they want to see most of the time, right? They want to see multiple people on the team with multiple graduate degrees, ideally some gray hair. And those are the people they like to back. I don't like to like exaggerate things much. I think that a lot of these things can be explained by incentives. And the incentive in therapeutics investing is A, it's very, very capital intensive. So one, therapeutics firms tend to be pretty big. They've got investors who are like very buttoned down themselves. But also, you know, it takes about $900 million in 10 years to get a therapeutic to market. So with that much money and that long of a timeline, you're going to really, really index on, you know, what you believe to be the things that will most likely get you through to market. And this founder, you know, doesn't have an undergraduate degree, totally working by himself. You email with him, you know, you don't think that he's like a real person. And then you start talking to him. It's like, oh, no, this person's like actually like the working in their parents' basement kind of genius person. But because of all these other things that signal top of the stack or top of the funnel, a lot of these investors wouldn't even take a meeting with them in the first place. So we exist to back people like that. And, you know, in that founder's case, it's maybe they start with a little bit of money because he's, you know, a real edge case. Start with a little bit of money, help validate his idea. And then as he goes further along, you know, a larger and larger amounts of money. And then also being able to work with the investors who know us to advocate for him, get him in with, you know, some firms that can bring more capital in along the way. That's an extreme example because I think biotech is one of these fields that's like really, really ripe for this kind of approach because at the end of the day, what what is a credential signal? A credential is supposed to signal certain things, certain competencies. Uh, and ideally, if you have a, a handful of credentials, you know, from Harvard, Princeton, Penn, wherever, Stanford, you want to signal like that you're going to be able to navigate the FDA regulatory process. And in, in the case of, you know, therapeutics, just as an example. So in navigating the FDA regulatory process is complex and also that you're going to be able to put your money where your mouth is when it comes to your research. Like, will your research work? That's the other thing that you're trying to essentially get a heuristic on. Like, what's a better way of doing that than like people have had to do research as their graduate degree? I get it. I get why people do these things. I just think, you know, there's lots of opportunity uh, apart from that. And there's also incentives governing the investors, too, where if you work for a big firm, you probably won't ever get fired for backing that like prototypical. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. I'm talking about the investors incentives. It's like, of yep. course, you want to get the credentialed people because if their company blows up, it's like, well, you know, they they went to Stanford. No, what can if you say? Yeah. And you would just chalk it up to like, well, you know, nine out of 10 of these fail. So it's just one of those. But if you back like, you know, the founder who's not in that mold and then it fails, then it's like, well, you're the idiot for backing this guy. Who's... And now it's on you, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. at the end of the day, there, there, a lot of things have to align. You have to have the right investor base in the investment firms. And then you need the right investors at the firms to really be able to support these kinds of founders. This was before I, I joined the firm, but in the firm's first fund, uh, the GPs backed a young man who they had met when he was running the teal when he was in the teal fellowship who was playing with lasers in his garage and like literally playing with lasers in his parents garage trying to come up with different applications for these lasers and he had figured out that you could use these lasers to replace uh, green screens for you know digital movie production kind of interesting you know there there's lots of that's done with digital movie production i'm sure 
But then the autonomous vehicle market started to percolate up. And it's like, oh, you know, despite what Elon Musk says, we probably can't use cameras on all these cars. And we also probably can't use radar. So we need something that's higher fidelity, higher power than radar, able to pick up a lot of the edge cases that the cameras just aren't really good at. And turns out lasers are really good at that. So, you know, he went from do, working on that in his garage, doing the Teal Fellowship, 1517 invested, and now his LIDAR company, so that, that LIDAR is like la- radar, but with lasers, it provides the LIDAR for Volvo, Mercedes, and, and a bunch of other companies for their production vehicles next year. Billion dollar plus company. Taking it back to something you actually, with this founder and with the previous biotech founder that you were talking about, how do you sort of navigate, and maybe some of this is your process, but how do you guys navigate the fine line between genius and lunatic, right? Like, I'm sure you guys come across founders who you're like, I mean, honestly, some of these guys, right, like they could sound like, hey, they're playing with lasers in the garage. Like, this guy could just you know, not have any idea what he's doing, but obviously he did. And now all these companies are using his technology. So how do you navigate through that fine line? Is it like shots on goal? Like you just, you try, you know, you back a bunch of founders with small amounts of money, you see where they get, and then you kind of continue backing the ones that are, are proving out to work. Or is it, is there something else sort of higher up in the funnel that you're able to identify like, Hey, this person's really onto something at this stage. I mean, it's some combination of all those things. Right. And Ultimately, at the end of the day, too, this job is kind of an apprenticeship business. So it's I rely on my general partners who have seen thousands of more data points than I have. You know, they both have 10 years of experience at this and they relied on Peter Thiel, right? You know, has even thousands more data points of experience. We kind of say that what you just described, though, is like I personally get excited when I come across a founder who's working in ideally like some sort of hard tech space, but sometimes software, I can't tell if they're crazy or crazy awesome. Like that's, that's the saying that my, my colleague Danielle came up with. And those are the really hard cases. And in those cases, what we try to do is we try to get to know the founders over time. That's really the best thing we can do because people's character comes out. And as you get more sense on what people's character looks like, and you've got more sense on like, okay, if they say X, Y, or Z is true, and then a couple of months go by and maybe they get some grant funding or something like that. We have a really small grant program that we sometimes use here as well with people. And X, Y, and Z is true. Okay, that's interesting. Or if it's wrong, you know, do they acknowledge that X, Y, and Z was wrong? And do they give a believable explanation for why, right? And to me, what believability means is this is a phrase in a standard that I personally take from um, Ray Dalio's book a couple of years ago on like mental models is like, can I reiterate it? And can I teach it to someone who is, is less informed than myself? So if they can explain that to me, I, I like to think of myself as like an educated layperson. Can I then understand it and regurgitate it, say, to someone who's uninitiated themselves and do it in an accurate way? Because that's kind of an indicator of some other traits that we look for. There's these buckets of traits that kind of come together and you look for some of them when you're, when you're talking with people, but yeah, the crazy or crazy awesome ones, you know, I think they're the ones with really the most opportunity, but they're also the ones where, yeah, you're sometimes going to be wrong. You're ideally going to get, be wrong less often (laughs) as you do it more. 
And when you are right, you know, you can scale into supporting those people. Yeah, that makes sense that it's definitely also a combination because it's, you know, it's not a purely quantitative thing, especially at that early stage. It's some of it is probably also just based on intuition as you see more and more of these. And I guess the size of the bet too, like, you know, you mentioned the 50K size bet, right? Like that's a lot different than giving a founder a million or more in terms of like size of your portfolio, at least in terms of uh, cash invested. Yeah. So one other question related to all of this is like, when you guys are looking at founders to back, are you viewing any credentials that they might have as any sort of signal at all? Or are you like, here's an example, like a concrete one. And this is purely hypothetical, but like when Peter Thiel was investing in Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like if Mark Zuckerberg wasn't dropping out of Harvard, but was dropping out of like a community college, does that affect if that investment happened or not? Right. So was, did the Harvard part play any role in that? And I'm not saying you guys are doing the same thing, but that's just more of like my question is, is there any sort of signal that you're still attaching to, you know, basically are other things becoming credentials that might not be thought of traditionally as a credential? Yeah, I can't speak to the, the, the Till Zuckerberg situation in particular. But for us, again, every case is kind of unique. So you want to figure out like, okay, let's say someone is trying to, they're working on a company and they're dropping out of Stanford. Or, or Harvard. Harvard's actually an interesting case to talk about. You know, Will Dogier coming back to Harvard and uh, Zuckerberg and Gates, you know, we'll come back to that one. But let's say they want to drop out of Stanford and they're working on something. You kind of want to get a sense for like, why were they there? What kind of tracks were they on when they were in high school? Because often, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of people who end up different kinds of institutions. Or if they're dropping out of community college, again, you want to figure out like, why are they there? Right. And you know, there are people that we back to. I don't even really remember which universities a lot of our founders went to before we back them. Because again, it's it's so much a case-by-case basis on what that founder, why that founder was there and what they are doing. So it's it's really a, trying to get a full picture of the person. One of the things, I was explaining this to an angel investor recently who I could tell was like a very conservative angel investor, which is an oxymoron in my mind, but you sometimes find these people in like um, in like angel syndicates or you know like in angel investment groups, especially in like second and third tier cities that aren't like New York or the Bay Area. They think they're playing Shark Tank, right? They think that they're buying like thirty percent of the company for fifty thousand dollars or something ridiculous. But you know, I was I was talking to one of these investors recently, and I, I was telling him that when it comes to the founders that we back. It's often so early, especially if we are starting with a $50,000 check. We don't always start with that. You know, I'd say our real sweet spot is like you probably have some early semblance of a product, maybe like a pilot or two if you're doing software. You know, in that case, we might do like a $250,000 to $500,000 check. But especially the angel stage, you're really, really focusing in on the person because the product's probably going to change. You're looking at the person and their motivations because... A, startups get really hard. They get really hard from like pre-seed. You know, I, I like to say probably from pre-seed to seed and then from like seed to series A and then probably like after series B. Every stage is hard, right? You want someone who can like really, really lean into that difficulty and that adversity. But you also want someone that if what they have to pursue changes and might change pretty dramatically, if you've got a sense of what their character is and their motivations you'll feel pretty confident putting some money in into this thing that you don't even know what that thing is going to be yet. You just know that that founder is going to be the person running it. That takes a certain kind of person. 
a certain kind of risk profile and a certain kind of um, firm. So, you know, the, the difference between like angel pre-seed seed investing and like late stage venture, I saw a tweet go around recently that's something like late stage venture is the new, you know, indefinite optimism track. It's new consulting and finance and high finance. This thing that people who like, they had a bright future in their paths kind of go do. And the tweet went on to say, you know, I know like five NPCs from my hometown who recently got jobs in, in late stage venture. It's a fundamentally different game than the early stage stuff. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah. And also with uncertainty. And I mean, a lot of these people, I'm guessing, especially the deep tech or, or biotech ones, you know, they're not even close to real data or, you know, human data or a product, you know, a usable product. So it's very different than even like early stage software investing, where you might say, hey, you have an MVP that has 20 paying customers and, you know, this is your conversion rate on your landing page. Like you actually have some usable early metrics. Of course, those are not, you can't extrapolate completely from those, but like those are still somewhat useful. And I would imagine in the deep tech world, you know, I would imagine for a biotech company or for an energy innovation, like it doesn't quite work the same way. So I definitely want to go back to the Harvard dog ear that we put in. Before we get there, one very uh, closely related thing to what we were just talking about with the founders, are there certain spaces where you found these renegade founders to be more impactful or like more likely to pop up, right? Like, are there certain areas they're being attracted to? And I would imagine, you know, just like uh, you mentioned Ethereum earlier, like I would imagine Web3 and crypto is one area. But yeah, I was wondering if you guys, since you see a lot of founders who kind of fit this profile, curious if there's some patterns that are showing up. Yeah, I mean, crypto is an interesting one because I think it's the greatest example of like even who you are doesn't really matter. There, there some of these crypto protocols and Web3 companies where they have anonymous founders. It's a tricky area, though, too, because it's also like when there's a gold rush, there's a lot more charlatans that go to an area. You have to be a lot more careful. We've done relatively few crypto investments, if I'm being entirely frank. And to the extent that we have done them, they're usually more like picks and shovels or infrastructure plays than, say, like a specific protocol. Uh, the way I kind of think about it is, what can somebody who's particularly intelligent and motivated do in like their parents' basement as, say, like an 18-year-old right now? It's kind of inaccessible to people who aren't really motivated, but it's accessible, again, to like a sharp 18-year-old. And I'm not even talking like, you know, socioeconomically. I really just mean like, can you find the way to pull the strings and the emails to make this work? And in my experience, right now, that's kind of where like life sciences is sitting. And, you know, we backed a team recently, and by recently, it was about last year, led primarily by high schoolers, 15, 16 year olds. And, you know, I was talking to another investor recently who was doing some diligence on investing in them. And he's like, I feel like I'm talking to Bill Gates of life sciences. And, you know, I, I kind of chuckle about that, but it's also like, well, it actually makes sense in my model because I think software was where I think life sciences now is where software was in like, you know, the 19 early. That's, that's really interesting. So we, like, have to, we have to put a dog here in that too. We, we should definitely go back to that. Yeah. So I think the life sciences are particularly interesting because I think people are way over indexing on credentials. You know, software is, is an easy place to get started. If, if you're, you know, reasonably sharp, you don't even, you know, the, the hardest thing would just be like getting a laptop at this point. And you can build software products pretty much from the get-go. Hardware always becomes, you know, a little bit harder. 
But these people you tend to find, I, I break hardware down into like more categories. Like there's hardware, there's energy hardware, there's IoT, so Internet of Things hardware, which would be like sensor hardware as well. And then there's like maybe transportation hardware. There's all these other things. And those people, you know, they tend to be the types who they were probably like putting, like making things in their in their parents' garage or in the school makerspace or in the community makerspace. So it really comes back to like, yeah, what can you what like what can you do with a thousand bucks and like a strong drive and curiosity? Those are the areas where I think there's there's more opportunity for impact. And like weirdly, life sciences I think are is a really interesting cusp to be in right now. It's also always really tricky though too because if you don't have the right advisors, you don't have the right people working with you. A, it's super easy to get duped, and B, it's also probably easy to invest in things that may do more harm than good. So it, it takes like particular scruples. Yeah, and it's probably hard, harder to detect like the charlatans in some ways too. So why is life sciences, in your opinion, like uh, software in the '80s? That's super interesting. What can a sharp eighteen-year-old do with a thousand bucks? And I think a thousand dollars in the eighties wouldn't get you, you know, adjusted for inflation, even, right? So like fifty dollars, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, a thousand dollars adjusted for inflation in the eighties would barely get you a, a computer, if that. Probably wouldn't even get you a computer. Yeah, right? probably not. So what you'd probably have to do would be like go to like the one library in town that has a computer, and you might be able to like find a terminal on it. It would probably buy you books where you can study something like basic computer science or maybe some very early programming languages, which you could then take to like the library or the school, the single computer in the school or in the university and start tinkering away there. Might buy you pieces to like build a very simple computer. Similarly, I think like $1,000 in life sciences right now, what it probably buys you is like very basic materials that then allows you to get enough money to get enough evidence to tinker with to then maybe go get a grant and then work with like a, a contract research organization, a CRO. So for example, on the founder I mentioned earlier, who is like real edge, like he's working the edge of his field. He's working on curing a very serious chronic illness that we have very prominently here in the United States. And he's done this largely on his own, you know, with some contractors and, you know, some advisors. And when he goes to talk to traditional VCs, those who work mostly with software, they're really confused how he's able to do all this by himself. And you know, at this point, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, but self-funded when he started getting, talking to us and he'd already had a little bit of work done when he came to talk to us. And it's because just the resources that are out there are way more uh, accessible, again, to the, the, the driven, committed, curious person. In his case, there are these organizations called contract research organizations, CROs. Well, you can work with a CRO and you can tell them, hey, I want you to develop this, you know, viral capsid, or I want you to develop, you know, this mRNA or something like that and send it to me, send it to me. You can then take that, you know, to another lab and work on it that way. So the way I think about it is like, what can a sharp, interested, curious person working in a garage, what is the most, the highest like learning curve that they can get to at that time? And right now, I think that's probably life sciences. And I think, yeah, in the 80s, it's probably software. I mean, I'm not the most well-versed on the life sciences space, but there also are these like platform technologies that are more and more accessible. You know, I, again, I'm not the expert to say whether they actually work or not, but 
bringing the cost down for doing certain types of experiments has certainly come down. There's a company that uh, that I'm familiar with out of California called Emerald Therapeutics, and they launched something called Emerald Cloud Lab, which was basically a way to run experiments remotely. And there's a lot of other life sciences companies that are using their lab space and running their experiments remotely and, you know, things like that. It's kind of like almost an AWS for, yeah. for yeah. experiment, you know, it's life modern. sciences experimentation. You the stack, it's kind of like if you've ever played Civilization, it's kind of like the technology tree, right? And certain technologies need, need to come first before you can like unlock, you know, the, like the fighter robots at the very end or something. In the case that you just gave, that's kind of like bioinformatics that we is what we would call it. You know, we have a portfolio company out of our first fund that does uh, bio, a certain type of bioinformatics, bio machines. Yeah, you need to get hardware costs down. You need to get cloud computing costs down. So there are certain IT innovations that have to have to happen first. The amount of information that you can transmit over a certain kind of wire, for example, you need to get those advancements first. All those have to fall into place. Dramatically drops the cost to do things that previously were very expensive because of all the input that you had to use all these other other paths to get them done. Right, um, or it wasn't even possible. Right. I mean, like, if you, if you think about like pre high speed internet, like, if you have to do all this over dial up, you know, that would be a whole different, a whole different game. I don't think a lot of these things probably would be even possible. Or I maybe mean, they'd be possible, but the timelines would just be so long to do it. The amount of information, relatively speaking, that's needed to do basic software engineering in, you know, 1980 might be relatively small compared to the amount of information that would need to be accessed to do life sciences work. But now because of the advances we have in information technology, like the founder I mentioned earlier, he can research his specific approach and all the research on it. He can find the research papers on it and he can find all the research papers on this specific disease and come up with a solution that way. And you're just not going to get that unless you have the advances in information technology first. So people like to poop you information technology advances and like at the cost of hard technology. Yeah. It's pro- we probably should have been building more nuclear reactors rather than, you know, Twitter. But at the same time, as you have more economic opportunity in things like on the web, it becomes more rewarding to do things like lay better fiber optic cable, right? Those advances. And that has downstream effects that do eventually affect the atoms-oriented sciences rather than the bits-oriented sciences. Yeah, like there absolutely is some sort of feedback loop between those two worlds. They're not isolated or siloed between bits and atoms, even though it does feel like that sometimes, but they're they're certainly connected. I mean, even to your point about the founder just being able to go out and research, I mean, think about how that was probably in 1980, right? You'd go to the library, you'd have to go to a university library, find, you know, you might even have to order it from another library and have it shipped. You know, it's just like a completely different universe. If you want to interview a researcher in that field, how do you do that? You know, yeah, you, you write a letter to them, hope they get it. You hope that they send it back to you and you hope that this keeps going on. Whereas right now it's just like you write an email. You could exchange, you know, 20 emails in a day and accomplish what would have taken you months, you know, in letter conversations. Yeah, they're absolutely linked. You mentioned earlier in the conversation, 10 years, like you've kind of been in this game in one way, shape or form for like 10 years or so. I would imagine, this is maybe just my own opinion, I'm curious if you saw something similar, I would imagine that over those 10 years, the belief in credentialism has decreased significantly. Like, I feel like if you told this to somebody 10 years ago that, hey, we're backing dropouts or we're backing people who, 
you know, don't fit this traditional mold, they would think you're crazy. Yeah. I wasn't working in this specific part of this, this field, but I was in this space. People would get angry. <laughs> like, because they, they take it as a personal attack on you or either, either they take it as a personal attack on themselves, either as like that they were dummies for going and getting their credential, or maybe they have a child who's getting a credential. One of my colleagues is writing a book right now, and he has been going back and forth with some editors just on feedback on his writing as he's going through this process. One copy editor was like particularly offended by what he was talking about. And we kind of joked, it's like, she's probably, she probably just wrote the $80,000 check for her kid to go to like Swarthmore or something. People would get mad. It doesn't happen nearly as much anymore. You know, to say nothing about the complete humiliation of the credentialed class in the last, you know, six years, really the last two or three years, but I think the last six years in general, I think that what people have seen is that the, the alpha to be gained on the credential is simultaneously relatively decreasing, but also weirdly kind of increasing. What do you now, mean by that? This makes sense when you think about how credentials work and how credential inflation works, right? My fundamental thesis on credentials is, and by credentials, I primarily mean like the, the standard credentials, so like the high school diploma, the college degree, the graduate degree, etc. My standard thesis on it is that the universities primarily worked for three capacities prior to really the GI Bill, definitely prior to the 20th century. Theological purposes, scientific slash research purposes, oftentimes these were, these were together. Like, I don't want to disparage, I don't want to make them sound like they're in two separate places. Often they're kind of together. And then like a finishing school for the elite. And people are like fundamentally mimetic. We imitate other people. And I think what you saw happen after World War II, after Korea, is you have all these GIs come back. You know, you've got this great economic boom as people are boom as people are coming home. They're having kids. They're buying houses. They're doing all this kind of stuff. You, then you also have the GI Bill too. So they want to better their lives. What do people do? The combination of public policy plus like cultural influences usually results in some kind of overallocation of resources into a certain area. Might not be an immediate overallocation. It might take a few years. It might take decades. And I think what you saw happen was people look around, they're like, well, what, did, what, do my, what does my manager at the plant have, the guy that wears a suit and tie? Well, you know, he went to university, so I'm going to go do that. And then as more and more people do that, simultaneously more people are finishing high school. So if you're hiring, the filtering mechanism of the high school diploma is becoming diluted because more or less everyone's finishing high school. You know, an increasing number of people are finishing high school. So you say, okay... If I'm hiring, how do I filter out this pool more? I'm going to now require a college degree. Because again, our managers seem to have them. You know, the, the main reason the managers really had them, though, is they probably came from the strata, the social strata, where it was either one of those three things for them. And as more and more people see that the college degree is required in order to get that job, more people go pursue the college degree. But then that becomes more diluted as a signal over time. That takes a long time. I really think that only started unraveling in the 2010s. You can actually see some of the data now is that the gains from higher education are now actually starting to turn negative. You got to divide it out. There's a, a great book by an economist at Ohio University named Richard Vetter called Restoring the Promise. I think it's, it's either Restoring the Promise or Restoring the Dream, where he talks about everything I kind of just described and looks at the economic research behind it. What you major in actually matters a lot more than where you go to school. So what you major in 
then where you go to school tend to be the two things that really matter. You know, your GPA, things like that, they really don't matter. But for like a good chunk of people, like if you're getting a psychology degree from, you know, Bumble Nowhere State University in, you know, Pennsylvania, you might actually have negative returns on edu- on on that credentialing. So what happens when you get to that place, right, where people are, most people who are applying for jobs have this degree, you get two options that really emerge on the hiring market. The one option is you can either try to find alternative signals that probably aren't like formal credentials, or you can require additional credentials. I think the latter one, you see some companies going in that direction right now, and you've seen it for a couple of years. I think, I think in the last two years, you've probably seen more and more get rid of it because the hiring market's been bad for companies. But this would be something like you need a master's degree or you need to be an MBA student in order to get like a marketing internship. I've seen it. It's not that common. And I tend to see it in like the big faceless corporation. I saw it at a major New York based airline, for example, right? And this was years ago. The other move is you just pull that credential requirement together or you say, you know, credential or equivalent work experience. That's generally what I've seen a lot more of. You know, the story I like to tell is way back when I kind of started in this field, I was talking to the, I believe he was either the president or the CEO of a big ad agency. And there are different people in this case. Sometimes they're the same, not always. And before I'd have these meetings, I'd check what their job postings look like to try to get a sense for like, okay, what traits do I need to find for a candidate to send these people? And they said, you know, BA or equivalent work experience. So BA in, you know, marketing, business administration or advertising or equivalent work experience. And I asked him, like, what does equivalent work experience mean? And he said, well, you know, and I expect him to say like maybe three years, you know, optimistically. On average, it takes five years to finish a bachelor's degree. So spent thought maybe he'd say five. He said, well, you know, maybe three to six months. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and like, I was already like kind of critical of the, the credentialing uh, cartels at this point, but I was like, okay, explain that to me. And he said, I think in three to six months, I could probably teach somebody what they would learn in, you know, four years over at Arizona State University. We were in Phoenix. That's why I was picking on ASU. Equivalent work experience is definitely what I've seen a lot more of on the hiring side of the market. On the investor side of the market, again, I think it is more common, especially in these fields like crypto and, and like consumer software. I still think at the end of the day, it's, there's a small group of investors, not a lot, who will lead those rounds. So what I mean by that is tend to be the biggest check and then set the price on the round. So you might say, I'll invest uh, $200,000 and we're going to set a valuation cap, which is like an esoteric finance thing for not technically having to value companies because that's actually a very expensive and time-consuming process. But we'll say a valuation cap with a convertible note or a safe of like $4 million. There's a handful of firms that will do it that are not, you know, necessarily your brand name firms, but, you know, more and more are willing to, but I think we're the ones who search that out. So some of what you're talking about with credentialism, that's interesting that one thought that was going through my head is a lot of this is also class-based and not just even about economic incentives, right? So like to your point about what the ad agency president or CEO is saying or the, the marketing firm president or CEO is saying, you know, six months work experience, you can probably learn what you'd learn in four years. And I would definitely say that that's true just from people that I've hired and my own experience. And you learn so much more on the job that's relevant for the job 
right, than you would learn in a classroom that's relevant for the job. Perhaps in the classroom, maybe you learn things that are, you know, going to be useful for you in your grad program if you end up going there. But in terms of what's relevant for the job, you learn more of that on the job. So I can totally see six months actually being the, the time frame. But if you told a parent that, you know, especially in a certain socioeconomic class that, hey, your son or daughter could be spending six months, you know, at age 18 interning at this firm, and they'll be making what they would be making at age 22, and they wouldn't even be 19 yet, and they basically have the same job, and now you're, you know, three and a half years younger making the same money, and, you know, you have three and a half more years of a head start, I guess, over your peers who did go to college. That parent might still tell you, I still want to send that child to, to college because what would, you know, what would my friends think? Or like, what would, you know, what would the community think? Right. So there's, you mentioned the credential cartel, right? Like they definitely still have that strong branding that they've put into place for, uh, for their product. I'd go as far as to say, I think for like a certain class of largely middle or upper middle class, people who are like a little class insecure, but like aren't like really poorly well off. It's kind of become the marker of being a successful parent, you know, being able to put the bumper sticker on the back of your like Hyundai, you know, or on the back of your Lexus. That's a deeper cultural issue. And it's a really hard one to fix. My response typically is like, you know, I, I just hope you're, you're paying for it <laughs> because you'll, yeah, you'll get a bunch of objections. Like, yeah, there are, there are good things about higher education. I just think that like, it's not worth the time, money and energy in the cases for which, for why people pursue it, right? So the other thought experiment that you can run through is this is one I've learned from an old colleague years ago and started applying it myself when I went to go give talks. You can ask an audience of students, say 100 students, and, I, and I've done this on a handful of occasions. Tell me how many of you would be here if you still would learn the things you're learning, hang out with the people you're hanging out with, you meet the same people you're meeting, spend the time you're spending, do the work you're doing, pay the money you're paying, but you don't get a degree at the end of the day, like at any institution, how many of you would still do it? In a room of 100 people, you know, maybe two or three raise their hands, maybe five, you know, in 100, maybe five will raise their hands. And it depends on the institution, right? You know, more will raise their hands at an Ivy League school on, a, in, on average than, you know, your local commuter school. And I tell the people who raise their hands, great, you should go become a professor. And, you know, a lot of them will say, yeah, I'm actually planning on going to grad school or law school or something like that. And it's like, there you go. Because otherwise, the reason why people are there is they're, they're there to get that sheepskin in order to get the job. I've got a, uh, an essay about this. It's called the Nirvana Fallacy, where people will compare a, an ideal reality to like a proposal. So you might say, like, I don't think 18-year-olds should be funneled right into university as soon as they graduate from, uh, from high school, right? I think they should go work for a couple of years. We should make it easy for them to do that. We should make it easy for them to go to university while they have a family too. That's the other thing. A lot of universities don't have part-time programs. Make it easy for them to go later if they decide they want to go. And, and then I'll levy the arguments against higher education as it's currently conceived. And people say, well, you know, it's, it's great for creating model citizens. And it'll be like, but is it? You know, look at the data. Like, you're saying in an ideal reality, yes, it creates like this de Tocquevillian, you know, mod, like model American. But in reality, does it really actually do that? Let's look at the data. Oh, you know, it's great for learning liberal arts, right? And one of my colleagues was at a, a gala recently on a panel and spoke to an audience largely of professors. And I just like could tell he really bristled at a lot of what he was saying. And because there are these types who like they love this idea of the mind, which like, 
I do too, but <laughs> I don't think that that necessarily needs to be done in the university. And and I would actually go as far as say that like the greatest, you know, people who had lives of the mind in history wouldn't get a job at a university today. We have to compare the actual state of things to what we are proposing, not like some, you know, nirvana of, of what it could look like to what we are proposing. That's how you make a good argument. Well, there's and, the ideas that feel good, right? That idea feels good to a lot of people, yeah, it, right? It's like, it sounds it great. great. Yeah, I, I would love the idea that like my student is going to go become a model citizen and, you know, study the liberal arts and, you know, come out reading like Plato and Aristotle. And, and while they go, you know, they, they, read, they crack open the Summa Theologicae on their lunch break. But the, the reality is that's just, even at the best universities, that's just not why people go there. And that's not what they do. And so I would say, like, okay, let's decouple these things from each other. Keep some universities around to train academics. We do, you know, the optimal number of academics in society is probably greater than zero. I don't know what it is, but it's probably greater than zero. But otherwise, you know, let people go acquire these skills and credentials elsewhere. I think, you know, the good credentials out there tend to be, like, very skill-oriented. They tend to be um, very meritorious in the sense where it's like, you have to pass an exam and maybe like an interview or, you know, uh, a specific project or something. But especially as the universities move away from accepting the SATs, which is the, the closest thing we have to a, an objective exam for, for examining intelligence. And there are problems with it. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I don't get me into an argument with Nassim Taleb on Twitter, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you haven't been blocked by him yet? Not yet, not yet, please. <laughs> maybe maybe after this episode comes out, if you listen yeah. to your show, I don't know. But yeah, like, it's just, it's so incredibly frustrating having these conversations. At this point, like, I just focus on doing my investing, finding the people who raise their hands and get excited about what we're talking about. And I think the macroeconomics, the macroeconomic conditions and the microeconomic realities have proven my fundamental thesis on credentials. Like, Education's awesome. You know, I, I love reading. I, I quite frankly wish I had a little bit more time to read. I understand why people go to grad school if it means you just get to sit around and like read the summa all day. But like, that's not the main reason why people go do these things. Yeah, I'm completely on the same page with you there. I think the, I think education is important. I think when you say that the universities might not be the best path to that, it's like a little bit more palatable to people. Cause I think when you start saying, now wait, I'm not saying you in particular, I'm saying when this point, gets brought up, people react by saying, well, education is important. I completely agree with them there. It's the delivery mechanism and the costs, right? There's like a cost trade-off to everything. And this actually came up on my episode with uh, Eric Jorgensen as well. We were talking more about energy in that, in that context. But cost is kind of like the other variable that is incredibly important when you start saying, is this worth it or not, right? It's like, at a certain price, you know, it's worth it. At another price, it's not. We used the example of uh, desalination for water. If you can make energy so abundant that that became cost-effective, you know, everywhere, then the earth has tons of water. There's no water shortages anywhere. But at the current cost of energy and the current ways that we produce energy, that actually doesn't make sense in a whole lot of places. And so the cost part of that equation is so important. And I think it also applies to education. It's like, you know, if you had maybe for liberal arts and this is just you know me coming up with an idea on the spot but it's like you know maybe these some of these like liberal liberal arts programs that aren't really tied to a specific skill or job that you can get afterwards i mean hey i would actually love to do them i didn't study liberal arts in college and i kind of 
sometimes wish I did because it's super interesting. Like there's a lot of topics that I wish I read more about or things from philosophy that I read now because it made you think that the other podcast that I have, which, you know, I never read in college, but Nat, who is a philosophy major, he did read in college. And so sometimes I feel like, oh, that would have been cool to learn rather than uh, chemical engineering. But, um, you know, maybe that's a more accessible thing if it's an online class that has, you know, 20,000 people enrolled and you have that one to many model rather than a 30 person class. Or you can find a one-on-one tutor who studied yes. these means are a little bit better off. You should have like a Plato for every Aristotle. Yeah, and honestly, the tutor model is way cheaper than than the current higher ed model. I mean, you can pay for a yeah. lot of tutors with that just annual like, cost of the yeah. Let's say your university education costs. Let's say you're going to go to an elite university and it costs like fifty thousand dollars semester. I think is where I would sit right now. Like. There are a few universities where I think it's cracked four hundred, maybe five hundred thousand. So let's be charitable and say it's thirty thousand dollars a semester. And you're gonna take what? Do you take four or five classes in a semester or something like that? And like maybe and realistically you're not actually learning from the professor, you're learning from a grad student in most cases. All right. So let's say you get um well, you take that thirty thousand dollars and you've got five classes, you know, so you've got what um $6,000 to spend on each subject. Could you hire a grad student and pay them $6,000 for the semester to tutor you one-on-one on the topic and then have, you know, le- video lectures and lecture notes that would replace the professor? We're saying, we're imagining you're going to a fairly large university in this case. Let's say it's a smaller, you know, capstone where you're actually working in a seminar with a professor. You're probably only taking a few classes that semester, so let's say you're taking three. Could you pay a professor ten grand to meet with you once a week for you know what two and a half three months and work with you? A lot of people would say yes to that. Probably could. Yeah. Would would professors say yes? Like, I think most professors who are probably not tenured Ivy League professors, where they're probably making upwards of two hundred, three hundred k a year. Will probably say yes. I think even those 200, 300K professors, if they're done with their research, might say yes. It's a great trade off. A great trade off. And I think you, you're kind of cutting out the middleman too, there, right? You don't have the, I mean, it's basically the school that's in the middle otherwise. Yes. I mean, you think about the grad student, right? It's like they're not seeing the money that you're paying in the tuition. I mean, grad students are notoriously very poorly compensated yeah. for the time that they spend. So. Now, the hard part would be like finding a quality grad student and finding a quality professor. And like, maybe that's what the universities stay around for. But it's like, yeah, what you're really cutting out here, you, you, there's these fantastic charts on how the price of different goods have changed over time, right? Relative to- There's this. some great ones. Yeah. Yeah. And there's one in particular that you've probably seen and a lot of your listeners probably have, where it's got uh, the stuff that's gotten cheaper in the blue down below in the, the line across the middle is the CPI. So you've got the X, Y axis, and then you've got the consumer price index. And then you've got a lot of goods that they've just gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Television's a great example. I remember when I was young that like television, the size of my computer screen here probably would have cost like $800. And now like the computer screen I have here, I think was $80 on Amazon, something like that. So that's like a 10X improvement, right? But then there's like two or three where it goes above the CPI and it goes way above the CPI. So the three main ones are university textbooks, university tuition, and medical services. In each of those cases, but especially the tuition and medical services, you can then take the price uh, increase over the CPI 
and you can then map it onto the number of administrative workers that work in these organizations percentage-wise, and they map onto each other pretty closely. There's, there's a pretty strong linear relationship between the price and the number of, you know, the vice of assistant dean of assistant provosts of diversity and inclusion at the university, right? They are the ones who really are the middlemen here. So there's no reason why you can't have a university that was much like the university 60 years ago with relative with like a dean, a provost, you know, in the colleges, and then, you know, the, the professor is largely running it. And you would dramatically reduce the costs. Yeah. And, you know, then there's the other costs of like the, the newer dorms that are almost like hotels. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of extra costs that have come into it, but I think the direct model, that's a, actually kind of interesting because it's almost like a decentralized university in some ways. If you could, if you could somehow figure out who the right grad students or the, maybe the, the better grad students are. And this actually ties to another question that I had, which I wanted to make sure we got to. You know, a lot of these founders who are, you guys are backing, who are these, you know, renegades and dropouts, they're working on very complex ideas. And sometimes you could argue that the, as I'm playing devil's advocate here, right? You could argue, I'm, I'm picturing that Boston-based, you know, life sciences investor wearing a suit, expecting somebody who has multiple graduate degrees to be invested in, and that's what they're looking to back. You could argue that that type of founder can better communicate to partners, potential acquirers, the FDA, all the different stakeholders that are looking for like a very presentable face to communicate those scientific ideas. Whereas the dropout renegade type person, if they do have to do that in-person type of, even in-person or phone or whatever, but that sort of biz dev type of relationship building may or may not be better suited to. So obviously that is that works out many times still, you know, that founder is still able to get that, you know, you brought up the example of LIDAR, right? It's a great example. Is it just a matter of helping them find the right team members to complement their skills? Or is it like you're also looking at scientific communication ability when you look at the founders and who to back? Yeah, I mean, it's both, right? You do look for eventually growing the team. I mean, ideally, there already is a team. We'll do some solo founder investments. The, the heuristic I kind of use is that person has to clearly be brilliant. I don't mean just smart, like really sharp. I mean, they have to be brilliant in their area. Because of everything you just mentioned, you're going to be so heavily discounted. And then when they're talking to somebody, they need to be able, the person they're talking to, if they're on a peer level, needs to be able to grok that they know what they're talking about. And if they're not on a peer level, they need to understand that this person knows what they're doing. So the founder I mentioned, you know, before we put even more money into his company, I flew out to his lab in the Midwest that he had contracted with at a university. So again, universities have some uses, you know, research, great, right? He had contracted with a major university lab. I flew out there and I met the gentleman who runs the lab, who's like an MD, PhD, 30 years of experience, very like by the book kind of guy. And I just sat in the room and I watched him and this founder talk to each other. And they talked as if peers, which is just a fascinating experience to watch, first of all. And you don't have to actually be able to follow every single detail along the way to know that they are talking as if they're peers, right? So we don't do that with every founder, but this founder is A, solo, and B, you know, particularly on the edge of both science and kind of acceptable presentation at times to, to some of those people that you mentioned, like the Boston-based VCs. So that's, that's a big part of it. 
Yeah, we, we look for something that we call hyperfluency. So can that person talk on multiple levels of what they're talking about? So can he talk to that MD, PhD as a peer or a near peer? And then can he come talk to me as if I'm, if I'm like a dumb Labrador? And it's still makes, right? You know, especially if you're back them super early on, you know they're going to grow, you know they're going to develop. But if they have that kind of raw ability, that's a really great resource for them to have and develop with. And then, yeah, a team is outstanding as well. Like, you want to see that they got a team. We usually back... Because recruiting, I mean, recruiting is, even just recruiting a co-founder is, you know, a t you have to really know how to sell to get somebody on board with your vision, right? It's like not an easy... easy and once thing. you do venture funding, your main jobs as a CEO are vision, recruiting, and fundraising. Those are the big three things, which means, too, you need to recruit people to do the things you were previously doing. Right. So that's why that's what led to that question was just I was thinking through I was like, all right, you know, it's one thing to have this great mad scientist, but like then to grow that into a company is kind of a separate skill set. I mean, you know, it can be related. Yeah, I mean, maybe they're maybe they're such a mad scientist. They're so inspiring, right, that they can get people on board. But yeah, I mean, a lot of brilliant mad scientist types. We do not invest in, I would say, even the majority of them. So, okay, before we wrap up, I did want to get back to that Harvard, Zuck, and Gates point that sure. you brought up earlier that we wanted to revisit. So Harvard had this ability for a long time to produce a lot of people working on really interesting companies. You know, Zuck and the Winklevi are the two examples recently. But then you have Bill Gates prior to that and, you know, with Microsoft uh, several decades earlier and many other companies along the way. And if you look at both Gates and Zuckerberg, and I, I don't, I'm not as specifically uh, familiar with the Winklevoss story, but with Zuck and Gates in particular, you can actually see a lot of their work on their companies were done during a period called Reading Days that Harvard had a very extended version of for a, minute, for a long time. And most universities have some version of Reading Days. What Reading Days is, before the very end of it, a semester, before finals, but after classes have finished, there might be like two weeks, a week to two weeks, where students just are supposed to study for their finals. After Harvard, after Zuck left and Harvard actually dramatically reduced their reading days. And since they've dramatically reduced their reading days, I've not seen anything significant come out of Harvard from the undergrads, which I think just speaks to the need and the ability to give people like structured free space is what I would call it. Now, I, I think when you have these sharp, curious people, there's a ton of opportunity in putting them together, which is what the universities are good at. They're good at filtering and they're good at putting them together. But you want to give them like pretty much structured free time. By structured, I mean where it's like, okay, they're, they're in the same place. And maybe some things are provided for them, you know, if they're young, you know, housing, you know, for example. You see all these DAOs that have spun up in the last year and the number of DAOs that have reached out to us to ask us to, you know, sponsor a house for them in the Bay Area for the summer is is pretty interesting because it's just like, well, it's, they they want free housing, right? Which is important to you know a young person who doesn't necessarily have a salaried job. I just think the the role of the the lack of classes in spawning something like Facebook and Microsoft at Harvard and just the dearth of really new things that have come out of Harvard since the reduction of those reading days just speaks to so much to like what I'm talking about here on like, just, you know, largely give these people some kind of freedom. 
I didn't know any of that actually before you, you, you brought that up. So that's a really interesting story. It's basically like you're putting together incredibly smart people because you filtered for that already. You're giving them free time and they're together, right? And so it's like, you know, they're sharing ideas. And I guess the idea is too, is if you've already done the filtering step, they're going to make use of that time, you know, kind of in a maybe not productive way, but like something good will come out of that. I'm sure a lot of bad comes out of it too, but that's fine. You know, that comes with it. And so when you, you have the structured time only, you don't have that sort of like Petri dish to, uh, to have stuff come out of. And, and I think that's the argument against, yeah, I think, you know, if I take the devil's advocate side, I think that's the argument against pushing people right into careers is they get very, very busy. So I, I think there is some place that for some time that's like kind of unstructured for smart, interesting people to be together. I mean, maybe what it is is just a reduction in the amount of work that people do in a normal job. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, who knows? But I think that you're right, though, like the unstructured time, I wonder, I mean, it's almost like that Google 20% time that they used to do. They don't really do that anymore, either, from what I've, what I've heard. Yeah, I would uh, bet that there's, you know, fewer startups that are spun out by Google employees. I don't know, yeah. but I would bet. Yeah, and it's also hard to get metrics on that, right? Because a lot of those startups are internal startups, like, you know, there's the famous Gmail story that came out of that. I mean, there's, probably a bunch of stuff we don't even know that came out of that because it just was folded into something else that they were already doing. That is a very interesting. So as we wrap up, you mentioned you're a reader, would love any book recommendations or article recommendations or anything that you've read that is, you think, highly relevant to the topics that we've been talking about today. Well, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't recommend my book, How to Get Ahead, which kind of encapsulates a lot of this, uh, this signaling theory of, uh, education that we've been talking about here. So that's kind of like the theory behind what we've been talking about is the signaling theory of education that like credentials signal certain things to employers, et cetera. So it's kind of like a professional development book published by McGraw-Hill. So I'd recommend that. Yeah, Richard Vedder's book, Restoring the Promise, is very, very good. And then I, I really like, it's classic, I really like Zero to One. You know, I recently read uh, a reading group on that and there's a few great lines in that book that are really pithy. One is that elite students climb confidently until they reach a level of competition sufficiently intense to beat their dreams out of them. And the other is that all Rhodes Scholars had a bright future in their past. So. <laughs> yeah, that's clever. Yeah, so those are, those are good. Actually, uh, I'll include all of these in the show notes. So anyone who's listening, you can check that out. Definitely grab Zach's book. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. He's a great follow. I'm, I'll include a link to his Twitter there as well. Zach, where else can people find you? I think you have a blog as well. Yeah, I mean, I have a blog. I haven't written at it um, as regularly as I write over at my Substack. Uh, so if you go to zackslayback.com, there is a capture for the Substack on the bottom of the site. So you can do two birds with one stone. But yeah, I also have a Substack over at zackslayback.substack.com. And Zach, in this case, is Z-A-K. Yeah, and if, uh, if there's anybody who's a builder or founder who, after listening to this, thinks that you know, 1517 may be a fit, what's the best way to get a hold of you or start that process? Yeah, there are two ways that they can do that. They can either write in on our form on our site and in the referral, they should say that they listened to the podcast or they can just email me and in the subject line say that they listened to the podcast. So my email address is Z-A-K or Z if you are in uh, Anglosphere, that's not the United States, Z-A-K at 1517, the numbers 1517 fund.com got it yeah and if you're listening and you are building something that you think could be a fit definitely reach out yeah happy to talk well thanks zach for coming on this was this was awesome we'll have to do it again thanks so much neil